Hi, this is Gender Gap, a monthly podcast series where we chat or gap about our PhD experiences, fails, and accomplishments when researching on gender and abuse. We are your hosts, Julia and Annie, and this is sponsored by the Gender Research Group at Glasgow Caledonian University in Scotland. touching on sensitive topics that some listeners may find distressing. Listeners' discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome back to Gender Gab. I hope you were all able to take a little bit of a break in the past month, just like us. Today is a very exciting day because we have our first guest on the podcast. Welcome to Erin, a fellow PhD researcher here at GCU. (laughs) Welcome Erin, great to have you on the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak to you both today. We're so excited to have you. Uh, Yeah, and just as a heads up um, for the audience, please, please be advised that there may be some distressing language used in this episode today, so please take care of yourself. Great. Thanks for that, Julia. So, Erin, why don't you start us off with a little bit of an introduction of yourself? Uh, You could tell us a little bit about your PhD, your research area, what you're up to at the moment, or honestly, anything you'd like to add. Yeah, so I started my PhD in October 2019 and I'm full-time, so I've just started my third and final year. I'm nearing the end of my data collection and beginning my data analysis, which is really exciting but also a bit scary. My research is on online abuse, but specifically online abuse as a result of women's engagement with social media activism that raises awareness of and challenges men's violence against women and girls. This can be a lot of different online activities like using hashtags, sharing petitions, calling out perpetrators and discussing cases but a massive part of this is also women sharing their personal experiences of male violence. And ironically, this often leads to an abusive and violent response from men online. I first looked at this in my master's research where I conducted a content analysis of abusive comments directed at women of the Me Too movement. And despite women sharing really personal and heartbreaking accounts of sexual assault and rape, they received a lot of abusive comments, mainly from men. Wow, that's intense. Um, Do you have any particular examples that you've seen repeatedly or which um, stand out to you? Yeah, yeah, there's um, a lot of abuse will include personal attacks, questioning women's credibility, blaming them for what happened, suggesting that they somehow deserved it, but also a lot of direct threats of physical violence, sexual violence and death. Generally, these threats were graphic descriptions of how men would shut women up or punish them for speaking out. Um, The most frequent ones seem to be along the lines of, I'll choke you with my cock, I'll rape you until you die, or things like, you deserve to be gang raped for being a feminist or for accusing innocent men. (sighs) that's gross that's a lot yeah so gross and this feeds into the silence and elements of online abuse and the societal silence of men's violence against women and girls Mm. that's so disturbing but i'm not totally surprised just because online harassment in general seems to be a silencing strategy um especially one that seeks to silence the voices of groups who have historically speaking have been neglected including women and marginalized genders um so one scholar mantilla argues that, um, quotes, harassment is about patrolling gender boundaries and using insults, hate, and threats of violence and or rape to ensure that women and girls are either kept out of or play subservient roles in male-dominated areas, end quotes. And since we know that women are more likely to experience in-person harassment, the same, unfortunately, seems to apply for harassment perpetrated through the online realm. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, women's experiences of violence are all kind of connected and after looking at what characterises online abuse, I also wanted to explore how women actually experience online abuse within that context. Women are speaking out about male violence to then receive an online form of male violence 
And I'd argue this is a form of re-victimization, which can then result in re-traumatization and can have serious implications for disclosure of sexual violence, women's safety and their participation in the online world. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine, like from, from also what I've noticed back when I was looking into online harassment for, um, of female gamers during my master's and then also just generally existing on Twitter and um, as always, um, I'm a bit too much on TikTok. As you know, <laughs> what I find really interesting um, is that women are being harassed for literally the most trivial matters, like even just posting about a nice thing that happened to them. Um, there seems to be always a man around the corner to harass them. But yeah, as you already said, it seems to be especially the case when we speak out about misogyny, sexism, rape culture, and gender-based violence. Um, yeah, like we've seen um, what you've done in your investigation with the uh, Me Too campaign, or even through specifically misogynistic hate campaigns against women, like um, we've seen, for example, with hashtag Gamergate, which is just truly horrendous. Uh, yeah, and it, I just feel like it's always framed as just a joke, winky face. <laughs> yeah, they claim it's just a bit of banter, and if women can't handle it, they need to get off the internet and back to the kitchen. Exactly. So charming. <laughs> <laughs> and this is something you also address in your PhD, right? Yeah, yeah. So for my PhD, I'm doing a survey and online interviews to investigate how women understand online abuse, how it impacts them, how they cope with it, and how they respond to it. And although I'm quite early on in my analysis, I'm finding that while online abuse can be a horrendous experience, women are so resilient and are demonstrating resistance and generally they're not letting online abuse silence them. And in some cases, women have increased their activism and are only shouting louder about men's violence. Particularly because online abuse only proves their point about men's violence against women and girls. So it's kind of galvanised them to further their activism and fight back against online abuse. That's really empowering to hear. Just because from my own experience and my friends' experiences, I've kind of just assumed that um, such abuse online could cause a lot of people to shut down and maybe stop engaging in online spaces. So I can't wait to hear more about your results and resistance strategies used by the women in your study. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's such a great and important topic to look into. So thank you for sharing this with us today. And like just the extent of such harassment probably warrants its very own podcast episode. So, we will, <laughs> so we will keep that in mind for future collaborations. Um, anyways, point is within its exhaustive tradition it is um, clearly not surprising, though definitely frustrating and infuriating. Um, but yeah, not surprising um, that we also have seen women scholars or female academics have been targeted for um, with online harassment. So Elaine Campbell, for example, she she did a personal reflection on her experiences with online trolling and how it felt never ending by being attacked across multiple platforms and how this seems to be um, kind of like a hidden thing people don't really talk about, especially when they got off, um, so, to, so to say, lightly in comparison to other women. So we've seen, um, for example, Jessica Ringrose, Fiona Vera Gray, Sally Hines, or Alison Phipps are just a handful of scholars on the top of my head who have also been very vocal about their online abuse in the last couple of years. And this sort of brings me um, or brings us to um, your experience, Erin. Um, you were also telling us that you experienced some online abuse as a result of your research. Um, if you're comfortable, um, would you like to share a bit more about your experience? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Um, I have experienced some and I kind of expected it given the nature of my research. Mm -hmm. But naively, I did assume that most of it would come from men. And while I have had quite a few comments from men and they are have been quite violent and like threatening, I've also had a lot of nasty comments from other women who call themselves feminists mostly gender critical feminists and this is because I'm allowing people to self-identify their gender to participate in my research which these feminists have argued is wrongfully allowing those who have been assigned male at birth to identify as women and participate. Ugh, imagine being transphobic in 2021 that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, yeah so did they did they comment anything like in particular or in a particular way or like especially also against yourself like anything you want to share? 
Yeah, I've had um, quite a lot of comments on my actual survey posts and some direct messages, but also people doing the survey just to sabotage it and, and the survey responses kind of personally attacking me and criticising the research. And things like I was stupid, a bad feminist, a bad researcher, that I'm betraying the suffragettes. Audacity. <laughs> and that I can possibly care about women's safety or violence against women. And the worst of the lot is that I'm no better than the men who abuse women. No way. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that. And it must have just been so exhausting to deal with. So did you feel like you had to counter these attacks or mitigate their impact somehow? Yeah, it has been really exhausting and I kinda do just want to take a bit of a break from Twitter to be honest. Um but I've increased my security and privacy settings on all my social media accounts and I've removed certain identifying information. I have a sticker over my webcam when I'm not using it and I've got a different email for my research. I've also deleted some old accounts and deleted a lot of photos of myself mm -hmm. um, because I just didn't feel comfortable with that being out there and um, because it made me feel too visible and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. I've also been using a VPN and I got a security subscription um, that's supposed to keep me safer online, but I'm not really sure if it does, but it does make me feel safer. Mm, that's good. So you're essentially forced into having to do quite a lot of safety work like after and during your research. And this is interesting anyways, because we know scholars have responded to online abuse in multiple ways, like many of the things you've mentioned yourself. So for example, self-censoring, their online participation, blocking people, muting notifications, generally removing themselves from an online space for a while. Um, and they, of course, may engage with certain posts and so on, um, or choose not to. So, and even in like most severe cases, you might also have to deal with legal action, which has a whole other set of implications in terms of time and money. Yeah, that's totally true. Um, also, that note, like Jessica Ringrose, Jessica Ringrose, for example, um, reflected how she had to adjust her public social media identity following online abuse. Now she, like, essentially had to self-censor her own name. Um, I also read a paper um, on a recent Canadian study among fourteen um, women scholars who all experienced online harassment, which found that um, uh, women scholars had engaged in self-protective measures as a form of coping with online harassment. So, um, for example, increased security settings, like you've done as well, avoiding certain social media platforms, like you've done as well, <laughs> self-censorship, and so on. Um, and women scholars have also done resistant work by speaking out, pulling back, or refusing to remain silent, or attempting to engage harassers in a dialogue, which also kind of like ties back what you said earlier. Um, and then they further found that women scholars were essentially unsurprised by harassment, um, as you said as well. Um, and that just kind of accepted the fact that harassment is unlikely to be severe. And finally, the, the study found, and I find this quite interesting from like an academic level, that these women also engage in self-blame. So like they felt stupid or blaming themselves for their own naivety and continuously monitored their own behavior. Um, so what the study essentially was showing us is that it seems that there's quite a few reactive and problem-focused coping mechanisms in place. And as a result, of online harassment, um, and which in turn also highlights how much invisible emotional labor um, women are actually doing and sometimes actually on a daily basis. And consequently, we've also seen how this online harassment impedes on women's safety and freedom of expression and also their ability to participate in online spaces. Mm, yeah, totally, Julia. And I think you made a lot of interesting points, um, especially when you brought up like emotional labor, and that's especially present in women in academic spaces. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned um, women scholars engaging in safety work. And I wonder if this work is ever explicitly acknowledged, understood, or even taught by other colleagues or supervisors. Probably uh, not really. Yeah. <laughs> I know for me, uh, I my director of studies, Karen, had 
has brought up the idea of using an alternative email address for recruitment to prevent backlash and increase safety. So some something that you mentioned too, Erin. Um, but other aspects of safety work may just be considered common sense related to my already being a woman in society, mm. which then leads us back to the emotional labor of not only navigating such sexism in everyday life, but additionally through our roles as researchers. Yeah, it's kind of just like all part of our awareness of violence against women and the hidden work that we do to keep ourselves safe. And I can't say who, but um, through my research, I was speaking to quite a well-known female academic in this field, and she kind of gave me a bit of a friendly warning about following this as my career path, simply just because of the risks. Mm. And as women, we're not safe, but especially as women who are challenging problematic male behaviour and putting ourselves out there professionally, we're making ourselves visible as targets to the men whose behaviour we are challenging. Mm. <laughs> <Jinx> <laughs> <joke>. <laughs> That's a good point, Erin. And I think um, the author and researcher Fiona Vera Gray points out something interesting about this type of safety work in her book called The Right Amount of Panic. Oh, input, just side note. Her book is currently available as an e-book download for free. So we put that in the description down below as well. So go and check it out. Yes, everyone go download it. It's great. Um, and this, her account on safety work is perhaps a different take than what you were just saying about the dangers of this work. But Dr. Vera Gray specifically acknowledges the agencies and skills used by women to engage in this work. So uh, I highlighted a quote that I think sums that the point I'm trying to make. Uh, so quotes, but speaking about our safety work is not saying that all women are scared all the time or even most of the time, nor is it saying we should be. It is about providing a challenge to prevention advice that focuses on the actions women could take, never acknowledging those we do. It is about repositioning women as capable and rational agents, skillfully and correctly assessing the actions and motivations of others. Yeah, totally. I think that sums it up really well. Yeah. Um, so what I find interesting about all of this is that it kind of feeds into the wider implications of safety work, which is actually a term Liz Kelly first mentioned in the early 2010s. And namely the challenges, or sorry, uh, behaviors or certain adaptations women make in order to navigate through life and reduce threats of violence. Um, so for example, changing your routes when you go home, having your keys already out, uh, checking the back of your car before you get in. Uh, walking along well-lit streets or crossing the street when you feel like you're being followed. Not listening to music when you're on your way home, especially after dark, or only listening with reduced volume. Sharing your geolocation with specific people when you go when you go out or even when you have when you hop into a taxi. Yeah, and what Aaron said too, like even putting in like one ear like earbud of your headphones so that you can like see if someone's mm -hmm. coming up behind you. Um, also not getting off a bus or getting off a bus early when you feel like you're being watched or followed and the list just keeps going on and on and just seems like it's never ending. And instead of actually acknowledging this work um, that is being done by women and gender minorities, we come to think of it as naturalized and not needing to be changed. And yet, even if you do engage in these types of safety work, you will still be blamed for your experiences with harassment, assault, abuse, and even murder. Of course you will. <laughs> yeah, and it's because we're taught to do these things from such a young age, we don't even question it. It's just part of the unconscious work that we do as women, and it's just expected that we do it to keep ourselves safe. And if we haven't, and if something does happen to us, it must be our fault. Mm. The expectation is that girls need to be taught to protect themselves, but at the same time, society doesn't actually acknowledge what we need to protect ourselves from men mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and if society was ready to accept that we wouldn't be wasting our time restricting women's freedoms and putting that emotional burden on ourselves would be tackling the problem of male violence yeah that's exactly right and kind of like leading on from that as well um it has kind of once again been so prevalent with the cases of sarah everard and sabina nessa um from a couple of weeks ago or months ago um and i mean 
how ridiculous these um, expectations of safety measures are because it doesn't actually matter anyway what you do because those who want to blame you will find a way to blame me anyways. So for example, how the police commissioner was openly blaming Sarah Everett for what happened to her by saying, oh, women need to be streetwise. You need to know your rights when you're getting arrested. Maybe women need to consider and learn more about legal processes. Like, no, thank you. Yeah, exactly. And the advice to the general public and especially women after these deaths were basically to run or, you know, ask a man for help. I forgot the most important part. Go wave down a bus driver. <laughs> yes, exactly. So like in essence, within this victim blaming culture, you can literally not win because someone will always find a way to make sure that you as a woman are blamed for your own victimization. The responsibility always falls on us. And in the end, it does seem it does not actually matter anyways, because you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. There's always something you should have done better or more or differently. Totally. And following on from this, Erin, you just read the book, Why Women Are Blamed for Everything by Jessica Taylor, right? That's a really good account for why society likes to demonize women. Yeah, I think everyone needs to read that book. Um, Dr. Jessica Taylor demonstrates how prevalent and normalized victim blaming is. And she goes into all the ridiculous ways that women are blamed for their victimization. And it just shows how stupid it is to blame women Mm -hmm. for the things that men do to them. I mean, she challenges the societal narrative that women are responsible for controlling male violence and argues that as a society, we're really uncomfortable with placing the blame on men as it's easier for us to rationalise this kind of violence and blame individual women than challenge men's behaviour at a group level. Mm. Yeah, so good and relevant. I'll have to finish reading it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so that's interesting. And also it reminds me, um, White and Macmillan were arguing how such individualised neoliberal responses hold women accountable for avoiding their own victimisation because they have to engage in adequate risk uh, risk assessment or risk management. And if they fail... Um, well, then they're at least partially to blame, right? Then in turn, gender-based violence or gender-based abuse essentially gets depoliticized. And within such a neoliberal mindset, victim blaming then um, becomes not just rational, but it also essentially becomes an appropriate response. And that's exactly what the issue is. Mm-hmm. Julia, you're getting us <laughs> into a tangent that I might not shut up in. So with concepts of risk, I think that would lead to a really awesome episode in the future. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Hope so I might, might wrap up this episode. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Probably a good challenge. So Erin, as you know, on our own podcast, we like to celebrate the vic- our victories big and small. And we try to do this every episode by telling each other our accomplishment of the month. So if you'd like to get us started, what is your accomplishment of this month? Yes, yeah, so I've just finished a full draft of something that I'm trying to get published. So I'm really excited and happy about that. Ooh, yay, that's pretty awesome. Good for you. <laughs> Um, So for me, I'm proud of all the side projects I'm working on alongside my PhD. There are many, and you've been busy, busy, busy. (laughs) So good work to the both of you. Uh, This month I've started my first teaching role, so I'm excited to see how the rest of the trimester goes. Um, Well, from what I've heard so far, you're doing a fantastic job. Um, So well done, Annie. Um, Erin, thank you again for joining us today and sharing your important research. I'm sure all the podcast listeners will want to hear more about your findings. So when the time comes, you should come and join us again. Yes, definitely. (laughs) So that being said, if you are identifying as a woman um, who uses social media to challenge violence against women and girls, um, if you have experienced some form of online abuse or harassment as a result of it, and if you want to get involved in Erin's brilliant research, please get in touch um, and head to her Twitter at pink underscore handed. Um, We've also put her details as well as the survey link and other information you may find useful, hopefully, down in the description below. So show Erin some love.
That's great. Thanks again for having me. Of course. You're awesome. Thanks again, Erin. If anyone listening is interested in joining us for a chat as a guest speaker, please get in touch. You can DM us at, at GenderGab on Twitter or write us an email at GenderGab at Outlook.com. And again, you can find Erin at Pink underscore Handed on Twitter. Bye! Bye.